Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The think pieces on how the pandemic has been handled will be coming out for years, but the end of the federal COVID public health emergency tomorrow has given doctors, scientists, policymakers, and others a reason to assess how we've dealt with COVID so far. Because it is still here, it has already in 2023 killed some 40,000 people in the U.S. and was last year's fourth leading cause of death. But experts say the reality is things could be worse. So what lessons did we learn? What have been our achievements that will help us weather the next disease outbreak? We take a closer look after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. With the federal COVID public health emergency expiring tomorrow, we take a moment to consider what went right. We know a lot went wrong in the U.S. COVID has claimed more than a million lives and taken its toll on the living. And we know the pandemic's not over, even as it becomes less severe. But it's worth taking stock of what worked, from national policies to community action, because we know this is not the last infectious disease outbreak we'll deal with. So listeners, what's something you found really helpful or thought we handled well in the pandemic? When another one comes, what's something you do again? Joining me is Jennifer Nuzzo, Professor of Epidemiology and Director of the Pandemic Center at Brown University School of Public Health. Jennifer Nuzzo, so glad to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Also, Dhruv Kular is with us, Physician and Assistant Professor of Health Policy and Economics at Weill Cornell Medical College. Dr. Kular, really glad to have you too. Nice to be with you. So first, I'm just curious, Dhruv, how you do think about the significance of the COVID public health emergency ending, the federal COVID public health emergency, what what message do you take from that? Yeah, so Mina, as you say, you know, the, the public health emergency is ending this week, actually, it's ending tomorrow. And I think that has a few different components to it. I mean, one is just this kind of symbolic ending to this crisis that has claimed, you know, more than one and a half, uh, 1.1 million lives in the United States. It's disrupted pretty much every aspect of American society. In many ways, the, the virus is still with us, of course. I mean, it still kills more than a thousand Americans every week. And so we shouldn't think of uh, the end of the public health emergency as the end of the virus. Um, but it is taking a lesser toll than it has over the past 
few years. Um, but there are also very discrete practical ramifications of the public health emergency ending, things that the government was able to do um, during this period that it will no longer be able to do. And so, you know, there's a few examples of this. One is that many people might not have access to free coronavirus tests anymore. Um, hospitals during the pandemic have received extra payments for caring for COVID-19 pa uh, patients, and that will go away. Uh, a lot of private insurers won't be required to cover vaccinations that happen out of network. Um, and importantly, you know, I know that this is something that Jennifer has thought about a lot as well. The federal government won't be able to compel labs to share test results with the CDC any longer. And so that will diminish in our ability to kind of keep track of where the virus is. And so, um, you know, in, in some ways, it's a, it's a, it's kind of an occasion to look forward um, and, and kind of be grateful that we are not in an acute emergent crisis like we have been um, for the past few years. But there's still a lot uh, that the virus is doing and a lot we need to prepare for going forward. Yeah, I guess kind of when you take the flip side of what you just described, you had this line in your piece that you did recently for The New Yorker, you're a contributing writer for them, where you said, the pandemic was a time when many people had access to food, shelter, and medical care with a consistency they've, they'd never had before. And I guess what you're saying is what we should learn is that that's something that worked and we should continue, Drew? Absolutely. So I think something that people don't recognize that gets lost in a lot of the turmoil of the past few years is that things like food insecurity, things like child poverty, things like the uninsured rate in the United States, they all fell to historic lows. And so there were elements of federal and state policy that were extremely effective at getting people um, more support uh, and making life easier for millions of people uh, because of the choices that we made. And so, um, you know, Congress authorized enhanced uh, SNAP benefits to support people uh, who were food insecure. The food insecurity rate fell from 12 percent um, uh, to 12 percent, rather, from from higher numbers in the past couple of years. That's the lowest number that we've had since we started keeping track. Um, childhood poverty uh, dropped to 5 percent from 10% before the pandemic. And that was in part due to something called the, the child um, tax credit uh, that has since expired. And then there's another um, element that is just starting now, which is that um, for most of the pandemic, states were not able to remove people that became eligible for Medicaid. Once you became eligible for Medicaid, um, you really uh, were, were able to stay on it. And now there's gonna be much more in the way of eligibility mm -hmm. checks, There'll be a lot of what we think of as uh, administrative churning. So people may not become ineligible for the program, but due to paperwork issues, they may lose uh, their Medicaid coverage. And so that pandemic low of, you know, less than uh, nine or uh, even eight percent of people in the United States have not having insurance, that will start to rise. By some estimates, there will be 15 million Americans who lose uh, Medicaid coverage in the coming months. And so the part of the lesson here is that we can, uh, with the right choices, uh, with with kind of the will to make life easier in terms of food security, uh, you know, rental assistance, uh, health insurance coverage. These were all decisions that we made uh, to, to support people during the pandemic. And a lot of those are falling by the wayside now as we're moving out of the emergency phase. Mm. Jennifer Nuzzo, what do you see as the effects of this public COVID health emergency ending, um, or, or what message are you hoping people will take from it? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the the biggest worry that everyone has is that we will turn our back on the pandemic, uh, not in the way of, you know, upending our lives um, for it in the way that we had to do a few years ago, but in not wanting to kind of take a hard look at all that went wrong and all the mistakes we made and all the gaps that we had in our ability to respond. And then really try to bolster uh, all of the weak points. Uh, that's my biggest fear uh, because, you know, we tend to sort of see these events as these these emergencies and then once they're over, it's over, rather than viewing it as a set of circumstances that arise uh, because of inherent weaknesses in our society and the way that we respond to these events that then gets exploited when a pathogen 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 gets dropped into the mix. Um, so my worry is I don't see a lot of activity in terms of, uh, you know, looking back, trying to figure out what was broken, what didn't work and trying to fix that. Yeah. That is the biggest worry for me. Well, certainly, Drew, you know, the um, the way that other countries who actually were able to handle it successfully really exposed the U.S.'s weak points. We have been you know, in this now for long enough to have some clarity on decisions that nations made that were very good and that the U.S. should emulate. What are some of those that you found as you looked into reports on this? Yeah, so I think there's, there's a number of different um, components to pandemic response, obviously. In a lot of ways, um, the United States um, felt fell short. I think there are a few things that many experts would point to. I mean, I think one is this idea of social cohesion and trust in institutions and, and trust in one another. And there's some good evidence, you know, out of Oxford, for instance, that countries that had higher levels of social trust, a lot of East Asian countries might fall into this category, they tended to better than countries where trust was lower. And uh, even within the United States, you know, places that seem to have higher levels of social trust um, uh, did perform better than, than those did not. I think the other thing that's really important to know is that, um, you know, you can't uh, fight the virus without knowing where it is. And so, um, you know, the ability to test, to contact trace, to have the right surveillance systems in place so that people know the level of community spread uh, in their area, that is another really important part of responding to a pathogen that starts to spread. And the third thing that I would point out is um, the idea of vaccines. And I think this is one area where the United States both excelled and, and failed. And so obviously the fact that we had a vaccine, not one, but two vaccines within 10 or 11 months of understanding the, the genetic sequence of the virus was a tremendous success. I mean, that is something that um, I don't think many people expected and has not been done in history. Um, but then, you know, we really stumbled in our ability to get people vaccinated, to get people uh, confident in the vaccine. Um, you know, we ended up with lower rates of vaccination than a lot of other peer countries. Um, and so I think there's kind of a, a dual story to be told there. Jennifer Nuzzo, you have also pointed to vaccines as a success story for the U.S., but then also, as Drew points out, it ended up also being one where we really could have done a lot better, especially in terms of getting vaccines in arms. But but at the same time, just start with why you saw that as such a huge success and why you think we were so successful in terms of a vaccine development. Well, if you asked me at the start of the pandemic if we would have multiple safe and effective vaccines in a year, um, and people did ask me, I would have said no, and I did say no. I, I, that's not something that um, we have achieved before. 
but it was remarkable that we did. Um, and it's the product of really decades worth of investment in the science. Since the first uh, SARS epidemic in 2003, scientists have been working on um, developing a coronavirus vaccine, sort of understanding um, you know, new coronaviruses and, and how we could um, develop a vaccine um, to uh, prevent or to, to respond to a, a new one that may, may arise. Really important um, you know, preparedness that happened in advance of, of this pandemic. Um, scientists have also been working on mRNA technology for decades and decades. So, you know, those kind of early investments and hard work paid off. Um, and then we also, of course, had um, really unprecedented political will. And that's really, I think, a great um, success story of the Trump administration was Operation Warp Speed and the level of uh, political attention to the matter to make sure that all the wheels of of a government bureaucracy and and science could spin in the same direction to make sure that um, we got these um, safe and effective vaccines in the timeline that we did. Now that said, uh, while you know my um, expectations were um, greatly exceeded, where we fell short was in thinking about how to uh, get the vaccines to people and to stimulate demand for them. And even as we were readying the vaccine for distribution to the states, there was no plan really that the states had in order to be able to vaccinate. Um, the vaccines don't protect people unless we get them into arms. And so we really fell down on planning on how we are going to do that. We also fell down on planning how we were going to talk to people about the vaccines. These were completely new and we should have expected it was going to require more conversations than we were ready to have. Um, and so that social piece was really, I think, a shortcoming. Hmm. We're talking with Jennifer Nuzzo, Professor of Epidemiology and Director of the Pandemic Center at Brown University School of Public Health, also with Dhruv Kular, a physician and assistant professor of health policy and economics at Weill Cornell Medical College. Kular is also a contributor at The New Yorker. His most recent New Yorker piece is titled Ending the COVID Public Health Emergency Isn't All Good News. We're hearing from you, our listeners. What's something that you found helpful or thought we did well in the pandemic? When the pandemic comes, the next one or another one. What is something you did that you would do again? What's something you do differently? 866-733-6786, the number. Post thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQVD Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The federal COVID health, public health emergency ends tomorrow, and we're talking about what we did right during the pandemic and lessons that we need to learn 
for dealing with another pandemic with Dr. Dhruv Kular, physician and assistant professor of health policy and economics at Weill Cornell Medical College, and with Jennifer Nuzzo, professor of epidemiology and director of the Pandemic Center at Brown University School of Public Health, and with you, our listeners, sharing with us what you found went right, what you think we need to learn from, what is something you would do again in another pandemic that you did during this one, you can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at KQED Forum. Call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. A listener writes, I would wear a high filtration mask with a good fit and seal around the nose and mouth to prevent infection when around other people outside the household. I do this at the beginning of a pandemic more diligently during a pandemic and continue to wear protection while a virus circulates. You know, Drew, getting this listener's comment makes me think a little bit about your point earlier about social cohesion and how masks became such a point of division for us in a nation like ours where social cohesion is lacking, I think many people would feel, right? Do you think mandates like mask mandates are necessary? You know, it's a, it's a great question, and I'm, I'm so glad that the, the listener, you know, brought brought that up. I mean, I think um, the evidence is clear that, you know, high-quality masks, when they're worn well, um, are effective at preventing um, the spread of coronavirus and, and, um, and uh, protecting yourself. Um, you know, mask mandates are, are a different question, um, in part because um, when people don't want to wear masks, um, the adherence to mask wearing... Um, may not be as high as it needs to be. Uh, they may not be wearing the mask appropriately. They may not wear, be wearing a good mask. Um, and so that is a more more challenging question. I think that, um, you know, as you say, uh, social cohesion really plays into this um, in, a, in, in a really fascinating way. I mean, if you look at a country like Japan, for instance, um, Japan, because of its constitution, actually has a lot of difficulty enforcing things like mandates on vaccines or masks or or lockdowns. It really relies on social cohesion and in some cases peer pressure. Uh, and their mask wearing was was really high um, in part because masks became kind of thought of as as face underwear or face pants. You'd be embarrassed to let it drop in public. And 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 so you know part of this is really um, a communication challenge and making people uh, helping people understand rather that um, masks um, are effective, particularly um, when you're in, in large groups and indoor settings, um, and, and the quality of the mask really matters as well. California, of course, had mask mandates. It also had the first major statewide lockdown, as people called it, but a stay-at-home order. It received a lot of praise for doing those kinds of things. Dhruv, I know you've looked at what states fared really well or had the best outcomes and what didn't, or at least reports that are, are claiming um, what states did. What what did you find out? Yeah, so, you know, I, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, when so little was known about the pathogen, its lethality, how it spread, um, those types of measures were necessary and important. I mean, if you think back, uh, you know, flatten the curve became kind of a rallying <laughs> yes. cry. And that was, you know, that was a really important part of the early pandemic response. You know, over time, we learn more about how it spread, where it spread, um, you know, uh, what types of uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions um, were effective at, at keeping people healthy. Um, and so uh, there was a lot of variation across states in terms of how they responded to the pandemic. 
Um, and, you know, I think the most important thing, you know, in the long term ended up being um, what percent of your population got vaccinated. And in particular, um, what percent of the vulnerable population got vaccinated? So, uh, you know, people who are older or have medical conditions, um, those uh, factors really ended up driving COVID-19 death rates. Um, if you take kind of the, the longer sweep uh, and look look back on on how different states did over time. And what states did well on that metric of basically the proportion of of people who were vaccinated and so on? Yeah, so if you look at kind of the states with the lowest COVID-19 death rates, um, places like Vermont, uh, Oregon, Washington, Massachusetts, Hawaii, uh, Utah, um, these states ended up um, with with quite low death rates. Um, And places, you know, many states in the southeast, for instance, Mississippi, uh, Louisiana, Alabama, states with somewhat lower vaccination rates, they ended up with with quite a bit higher death rates. Um, You know, when you think about things like um, school closures, um, business closures. Uh, I think the story gets a little bit murkier there. I think, you know, looking back um, with the benefit of hindsight, we would say that, you know, really um, schools should be the last thing that that closed during any emergency. And while there was some spread uh, in schools, um, for the most part, states that had shorter uh, school closure times did not fare substantially worse than those that had longer school closure times. And so I think that's another lesson that we need to keep in mind for the next pandemic. And there are things that we can do to make schools and other indoor settings safer. And I think um, something like upgrading back, uh, ventilation systems is one of the most important. And, and so um, those are the types of interventions we need to start thinking about as we look towards the next pandemic. Dr. Nuzzo, do you agree about schools, that schools should not have been closed or at least closed for as long as they were in some states? Uh, Yeah, I largely do. I mean, when we're talking about COVID-19 specifically, yes. Um, I think with the data, we're clear quite early that we could have done more to open schools. And I think many people felt quite frustrated that uh, schools in many communities were actually the last to open. I remember (laughs) driving past a very packed bar on a football evening uh, evening of a local football game, um, seeing the, the packed bars and thinking, I really wish my kid could go to school. Um, so y- yes, I think that's clear. But, you know, uh, one of the great, um, you know, pieces of luck in terms of this virus was that it didn't harm kids more. And so we have to, you know, uh, always assess what the particular risks of a pathogen are and particular risks of of spreading in certain settings. Um, That's one of the reasons why, you know, while we can say now that with respect to COVID, we should have opened schools earlier, we do have to think ahead to other pathogens that that could be, um, you know, more easily spread within schools, um, potentially like influenza viruses, and make sure we put into place the kinds of controls that you've mentioned uh, in terms of ventilation, improving ventilation, that would keep us safer in those settings. Because we also know that even if it were necessary to close schools for as long as we did, uh, that comes at a tremendous cost. And so we want to make sure we can avoid that um, as much as possible. And that requires um, also making sure that we have some um, some uh, benefits to the infrastructure uh, to make that a, a safe and easy prospect. 
Well, this listener writes, in another pandemic, I will not isolate myself and my family for as long as we did. My husband is older and we have teenagers and I was worried about us getting sick. So we didn't join outdoor gatherings until well after people began doing them. We were super cautious about mingling with others. That level of isolation took a toll that I didn't realize until later. And Noel tweets, helping lower income families get some extra money, which lowered the child poverty rate temporarily. I'd want to see that again. Why can't we stomach helping the poor instead of billionaires? Dhruv, I know you need to leave us, but I did just want to ask you before you go if there are anything, if there's anything we didn't get to that you really want to point out in terms of a lesson for next time or a success story that you want to highlight. Yeah, you know, I think. Um, <clears throat> These are such important points, and I, and I think part of the, the the question around how long one isolates and in what circumstances um, does depend on the pathogen. And as we um, you know learn more about COVID nineteen and where it spreads and the degree to which um, the spread seems to be happening indoor versus outdoor settings, you know people I think um, need to make decisions that make sense for their themselves and their families. Um, you know, as Jennifer said, that that could be a different calculus in the next pandemic, and so it's it's hard to say in the abstract, um, you know, what the right amount of isolation versus non isolation is um you know to the second to the second point i, I do think I, I do want to emphasize that um you know the the decisions to make life easier for people um were, were political choices that that we made and that we know now uh were effective um at, at reducing hardship during the pandemic those are things that are now being reversed and those are also uh, in a different way political decisions that that we are making and, and we're allowing to happen and when it comes to the pandemic or a future pandemic um you know things like um you know paid family leave making sure that people are able to uh isolate when they they do have a virus um and making those types of things easier for people to do to make the right choice i think those are the types of social policy um, that will allow us to be uh, successful uh, when the next pa uh, pathogen strikes. Well, Drew, really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you for giving us your time. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Dhruv Kular of Weill Cornell Medical College, a physician and assistant professor there at their Health Policy and Economics School. Also, if you want to check out his most recent piece for The New Yorker, it's titled Ending the COVID Public Health Emergency Isn't All Good News. Jennifer Nuzzo is also with us, a professor of epidemiology and director of the Pandemic Center at Brown University School of Public Health. And you, our listeners, are sharing moments where you felt proud of how we did in the pandemic, whether personal or policy that was enacted or an action that you or someone else took, something that you would do again when another one comes around or something you do differently, questions you have about preparing for future pandemics. You can email forum at kqed.org, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or call us at 866-733-6786. Uh, Steve in Portland is on the line. Hi, Steve, you're on. Hello, good day. So I'm an engineer and got involved with creating a new kind of pepper, which is a powered air respirator that is used in hospitals by doctors. And we were starting to bring it out for the general public. And to be a little controversial, the CDC became a huge block to any new products on the market. And it basically stopped our development. And we could have had a basically an N100 wonderful fit. I mean, people tried it, they didn't want to take it off. 
and it would have protected certainly the immunocompromised among the group. So mm. I would suggest that everybody look at what the CDC is doing. They're acting as a block to new products, especially if, in the Valley. We all know about, you know, coming up with new products and how important it is. And when we presented to the CDC, the first thing they said is, why did you build this? Why didn't you build it for us? Well, we said we built it for the market. So there's a huge problem with the CDC that needs to be addressed. Well, Steve, you're making me think of a couple of questions for Dr. Nuzzo. One is um, just in terms of one of the things that really did suffer was trust in institutions like the CDC. So your thoughts on that, but also on, you know, what are effective products um, that you think we should consider investing more in or keeping if we have them for future pandemics. So, Dr. Nuzzo. Yeah, the trust one is huge. And um, it's really interesting if you look at some of the polling data um, throughout the pandemic. What we saw initially was fairly high levels of trust or, you know, um, support for public health uh, agencies and authorities, um, particularly the national ones like CDC, um, in, um, among people of both parties. And that's really important was to remember that um, however we are right now wasn't necessarily how we were at the start of the pandemic. Um, but over time, you saw those levels of, um, of trust and support decline, and in particular decline in a bifurcated way, meaning it declined faster for for, for Republicans than it that, that did for Democrats. Nonetheless, there were deep declines. Um, and that's, I think, an important lesson for us because um, when you are asking people to do things, um, if they don't believe the messenger, uh, the likelihood that people will do what is being um, recommended is is quite low. It started high, but it is low, and we will need to do quite a bit of work in order, I think, to to repair it and get back to the, the levels that we were. Um, but the other part of the question, I think, pertains to how we innovate and um, and study things in the midst of a pandemic. And while uh, we can think of examples where perhaps there were remedies or important tools that um, we could have developed. And um, we also have to think about the um, alternative case, which is that, you know, throughout the pandemic, we saw a lot of people trying to sell stuff uh, that were supposedly going to protect people. But then when you would look into it, it was actually not protective. Um, and in some cases, it was harmful. I remember actually quite early in the pandemic getting lots of questions about why couldn't we use, um, you know, X, Y and Z treatment that was supposed to um, heal people from COVID when, in fact, if you looked at many of those things, they were actually quite harmful. And I'm not even talking about the more controversial ones like like ivermectin. I'm actually talking about things like ozone uh, that are known to be lung irritants. So um, there is a need for a regulatory approach to make sure whatever is being sold um, as as uh, something that can protect people does, in fact, do what it says it does. And, and thinking about how to kind of uh, organize the oversight of those things in, in an emergency is, is really quite daunting, but nonetheless really important. We saw very quickly that uh, the United States didn't have enough masks, and we had to marshal a lot of private sector resources in order to start producing things that had been typically uh, produced overseas. So figuring out how to kind of tap the private sector and get them involved in producing the products that we need and making sure that the products that they produce are quality and do what, what we hope they'll do um, I think is one of the big challenges going forward and thinking about the next pandemic. Well, this is Narites. I'm wondering how we prepare for another pandemic when we don't know where it might come from. How do scientists figure that out? 
Sure. We don't know where it's going to come from. And we also don't know what it's going to entail. We don't know what pathogen it's going to entail. We probably have a not very exhaustive list, but, you know, a, a list of, of potential candidates. Um, but that doesn't mean that the next uh, pandemic will be caused by um, one of those pathogens. We also won't know um, how severe it is and, you know, how severe it is is really important because if it's a mild you know, pathogen, probably it won't have the same kind of impact or require the same kind of response as if it's it's quite deadly. And to all those kind of earlier questions about, well, I'm not going to do that next time. Um, next time, what we're going to do is kind of have to depend on on what um, the, the pandemic is caused by and how deadly it is and, and how worrisome it is to us. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, we can very well prepare. I mean, we can think about, um, you know, some of this, the likely scenarios and some of the worst case scenarios and then sort of game out what we should do in those scenarios. And unfortunately, I don't think we have a great plan now for the next pandemic, in part because we haven't gone back and looked at all the things that went wrong during this one and make sure we don't try to repeat those mistakes and then make sure that we have in place um you know, the things that we were lacking in this pandemic so that we don't uh, find ourselves in the same uh, situation of having, you know, another pathogen upend our lives in the way that this one did. I, I liked and appreciated in a TED Talk, you talked about how we should think about pandemics the way we think about fires. Why is that a good model? We're coming up on a break, but maybe if you, if you could just lay out sort of the, the skeleton of what you mean by that. Yeah, I started thinking about fires in part because I was worried that people were thinking that as cases, COVID-19 cases were abating, that we were sort of, you know, out of the out of the woods and that we would be safe for the next 100 years. Whereas when we have giant fires, we don't assume after the fires have been put out that another one will never happen again. And that's true for pandemic threats. We live in an age where we're likely to see more of these sorts of things, and we need to build into our society defenses against them in the same way that we built defenses against great fires such that we don't uh, wander around daily consumed with worry that our cities are going to be set ablaze like they were 100 years ago. And we'll talk about what that can teach us in terms of being better prepared for another pandemic. Right after the break, we're talking with Jennifer Nuzzo, professor of epidemiology at Brown University School of Public Health. And we're talking with you, our listeners, about how you are reflecting on this pandemic as the federal COVID public health emergency ends tomorrow. Things that went well, things that you do differently, questions that you have about our readiness for the next one. 866-733-6786, the number, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're at KQED Forum. You can post there, email forum at kqed.org. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The federal COVID public health emergency ends tomorrow, and we're talking not just about what went wrong, but what went right. Everything from national policy to things that you appreciated or found helpful. And let me go to Carol in Campbell, who's on the line. Hi, Carol. You're on. Hi. Thank you. Can you hear me? I can. Thank you. Um, So I really appreciate this conversation. I am a faculty member at a community college here in the South Bay, and um, there were so many, uh, you know, the the district provided so many um, accommodations for everyone, students and faculty alike. We had MOUs, um, memorandums of understanding about uh, online teaching, and one of the main things that... um, they've done is they've taken everything away. So some of the things that we learned over uh, the pandemic was that students in this area, especially community college students, are working multiple jobs and living in, you know, households with um, many generations of families, and they have to work and take care of, of different family members, and they actually prefer remote learning sometimes. And so at that age and level, we're trying to reach out to the districts and tell them that some of this learning for us and for them was actually beneficial and Mm. they are not having it. They want it all back in person, Mm. all now, and um, at the risk of low enrollment for our community college students, classes may be getting canceled and, and things like that. So this is a real thing that we're going through, and I just wanted to mention it. Well, Carol, thanks for mentioning it. Um, Barbara writes, as a retired nurse practitioner, I was able to join an amazing corps of volunteers working at mass vaccination sites in Oakland. My fellow vaccinators were retired dentists, vets, nursing professors, and others. And the sites were incredibly well organized by the wonderful nurses from Alameda County Public Health, supported by multicultural interpreters. It was a privilege to participate in this effort. Barry writes, it is my understanding that anyone who is in the hospital and tests positive for COVID, even if they are asymptomatic, are considered a, quote, COVID hospitalization. The impact of the virus is difficult to assess if we do not measure actual endpoints related to COVID. Um, Well, Jennifer, your thoughts on that in terms of how we're collecting data now and gauging um, the widespread nature of of COVID and so on and its impact on our society. But I think also more broadly, this question of data collection feels like an area where we have a lot to improve or build from (laughs) if we had some successes at all. Yeah, that's on my short list of things that we need to fix um, before the next pandemic. And I think to the point of, you know, how we even track hospitalizations from a pathogen is a really important one. There were many, uh, there you know, systems that were put in place um, for COVID that are at risk of, of ending, um, you know, for the sh- the time being, they're probably just going to be slowed and uh, the reporting frequency is is going to be slowed, but eventually they will end. And it's quite unfortunate because obviously COVID is still with us. I mean, even if the emergency is ending, there are still 
um, as Drew said, uh, more than a thousand people dying per week. Uh, we also know, uh, based on what happened last fall and winter, that other respiratory pathogens are poised to to make the comeback and and cause high levels of hospitalizations and deaths. And so, really being able to track how these viruses affect hospitalization is really key. And it would be my hope that we could get more nuanced data. So not just are they in the hospital for some other reason and can, but also happen to test positive for COVID. Um, but um, why are they in the hospital? Is it COVID that's causing it primarily? Is there something about perhaps then the virus that's changing that would be making uh, that those trends change over time? We really have so much more work to do to kind of tease apart the data so that we can use them more proactively. Um, when people go to the hospital for a respiratory infection and when there's a large number of people doing that, that affects all of us. It affects everybody's ability to get care. It affects the level and quality of care that everybody gets. So being able to monitor in a nuanced way that we can act upon a better a hospitalization hospitalization data is is really, really key. Um, but then, you know, if you think about all the other ways that we've been tracking COVID, many of those things are going away. And while, you know, the, the actual case numbers are now less interpretable because most people, if you find out you have COVID, it's because you've taken a home test and that's not something that gets counted. Um, you know, we're going to, again, need to be able to track not just this virus, but other ones. And, and can we make sure that we have a system that does that better than this one did. So many of, of the COVID data systems that were put in place were not there at the start of the pandemic and had to be developed on the fly and were never quite um, as, as good as we needed them to be and now are at risk of, of being shut down before um, all the fixes have been made. God, I remember that so well, just not knowing where the virus was circulating, seeing contract tracing efforts, contact tracing efforts just sort of fall apart, in part why we needed the stay-at-home orders so that, you know, we could make sure that we weren't overwhelming hospitals with um, transmission and so on. The other thing that I remember was just how hard it was for us to get people tested. Can you just talk a little bit about lessons learned around testing? And are there any efforts right now to or things that we can do for an unknown future pathogen to make testing better than we did? Yeah, it's hard to remember. But remember, at the start of the pandemic, it was incredibly hard to get tested if someone thought you had COVID. You pretty much had to be in the hospital and, and quite ill in order to be tested, in part because there just wasn't enough capacity to test. It took way too long to fix that problem. And then once that was sort of fixed, and it never got to the point where everyone was able to get tested easily and freely and be able to get their test results back very quickly, um, there were always uh, sort of access problems and timeliness problems. Um, that was solved a bit uh, when um, rapid tests finally became available and that you could go into a store and buy them. But those were always way too expensive for a lot of people. So again, there are a lot of these like testing woes that were never quite fixed that are now just, you know, um, going to, to fade away as, as a lot of testing is likely to stop um, once the public health emergency uh, ends. Um, you know, we need to fix these problems for next time. And and we saw kind of signs of, of the problems uh, reemerging at the start of the MPOX um, outbreak about a year ago, 
where we were hearing um, from clinicians who, um, while there was in, in that instance, a test available at public health laboratories, uh, clinicians who had a patient that uh, they thought um, perhaps had MPOX would have to be on the phone for hours and hours to try to send their uh, patient's specimen to a public health laboratory, not the same types of laboratories that doctors and nurses typically use um, for their patients. And that was a really cumbersome process and it caused unnecessary delays. And so we have to make a better uh, plan for how we are going to establish and and expand testing in the next public health emergency. Um, I'm so frustrated by it. It's actually something that my team and I are working on right now um, with the goal of trying to uh, make more clear the decision points that have to be made because we keep seeing the same mistakes being made over and over again in, in each public health emergency. Why was South Korea able to develop a test so quickly? So right there, they partnered um, off the bat with the private sector and um, multiple private sector companies to make sure testing was available. And that was something that um, took the U.S. a very long time to do. A uh, big lesson learned, I think, but certainly something that should be in our planning for next time. Yeah. Um, the analogy that you made with fires, the other one that I appreciated is you talked about how with fires, we created defenses around it. And, and Drew brought this up a little bit, but you have also emphasized that a major, at least structural infrastructure defense we could do is really improve indoor air quality, um, <laughs> or at least seriously change our approach to it. Can you talk about why that's so important and, and whether you're seeing progress along those lines? Yeah. So, um, you know, if you think about what we've done to buildings, like if you live in a city or in San Francisco, if you're living in a, in a city and you look at buildings, there's all sorts of codes that are built into those buildings. You know, we don't use fire prone materials in buildings. We make sure that the buildings are designed to reduce their vulnerability to fire risks. Um, thinking about indoor air quality should be one of those things we do to buildings to make them less vulnerable to super spreading events and infectious disease threats. Um, these are the recurring hazards of our times. And there's a lot that we can do to the infrastructure around us to make it such that we're less vulnerable to these um, threats so that we don't have to spend our days worrying about them. Um, and, and that's one piece. Another piece is that, um, you know, I, I've studied a lot the great urban fires of more than 100 years ago. And, um, you know, we didn't used to have fire departments, um, but we built fire departments, we staff fire departments, we maintain them, we certainly don't try to fire them after the last fire, assuming we'll never need them again. And yet that's exactly what we do with our public health workforce. Uh, we, um, you know, after the great recession of 2008, many states made huge cuts to their public health workforce, and there was documented loss in, in emergency response capacities nationwide. That's what we started the pandemic with, and we had to make expensive investments in trying to hire people last minute. These weren't necessarily experienced people who've been working day in and day out in the communities they were ultimately asked to serve, but we had to, um, you know, try to deploy this emergency workforce. Um, and then as soon as the COVID funding started to lapse, you know, many of these people were let go. And so we're finding ourselves perhaps close to being back where we started at this pandemic, which is, a, you know, a skeletal workforce that is not adequately ready for recurring infectious disease hazards. Sometimes that occur, you know, multiple at the same time. I mean, we were still dealing with COVID when MPOX uh, became a problem and many health departments uh, had fewer staff to deal with that than they had earlier in the pandemic. And it was really, really challenging. So we need to bolster our defenses. And 
um, you know, make sure that they're there day in, day out. There's a lot of stuff they can be doing in the communities to be making us healthier and safer. We have a lot of uh, important health issues to address in terms of um, chronic illness and, uh, you know, opioid uh, use, uh, many things that they could be doing day in and day out to make our communities healthier and safer. And that also then would be ready for an emergency. I remember the appreciation we showed initially for frontline health workers, public health officials, and so on. And that is definitely something that I would want to make sure we maintain uh, when we face another infectious disease outbreak. We're talking with Jennifer Nuzzo of Brown University School of Public Health, a professor of epidemiology and director and co-founder of their Pandemic Center. We're talking about the federal COVID health public health emergency. And you are listening to Forum. This happens to be a fundraising period for many public radio stations. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And we've got listeners raising a lot of additional important questions and issues that could be addressed better. The sister writes, what to do about misinformation? A little went a long way to undermine social cohesion. <laughs> Jennifer, I know you've thought about this a lot. Yeah, this was a really, really vexing problem. Um, you know, I've been working in the field of preparedness for 20 plus years, and I have never seen um, the misinformation nearly as bad as it was during COVID. Um, it was really frustrating because, you know, I had the privilege throughout the pandemic of talking to hundreds of people, all sorts of people um, about COVID and the vaccines. Uh, you know, people largely were trying to protect themselves and their families. Uh, but they didn't necessarily know what was the best source of information um, uh, to get, you know, where, where would they get the information to do that? Not everybody, particularly as the pandemic ticked on, um, necessarily believed the information coming out of, of official health um, channels, um, in part because of missteps and declining trust. Um, but what I started noticing when talking to people is that as they would set out to kind of do their own research, depending on, you know, sort of who they were or, you know, what their uh, affiliations were, uh, they would be, you know, doing that research in an information ecosystem that was completely poisoned by lies. So that, I think, is one issue that we really need to focus on, the fact that um, it is very hard for people even to find the truth. Um, but separately from that, and I don't think you can just fix the information and assume that if you give people the facts, they'll act right. I mean, obviously, we have to address issues of, of trust. And one of the things that I also found in talking to people um, is that it was very frequently the case that people who were doing this sort of research for themselves didn't have anybody they could turn to who was expert. And very frequently, that also included not having health care, a regular health care provider. So um, the earlier part of the conversation, we were talking about loss of access of you know health insurance and being able to to access health care. That really underpinned a lot of the challenges um, that I observed that people were experiencing, and you know it really speaks to how our underlying social vulnerabilities become our biggest pandemic vulnerabilities. If people have don't have regular access to health care and and, and trusted health information sources in their lives day in and day out. That becomes a real liability when we're responding to the pandemic as a nation. Let me go to caller Ramey in Pacifica. Hi, Ramey, you're on. Hello, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering how many people actually passed away during the entire COVID period, not because of COVID, but 
because of our overburdened health care system. Uh, my father uh, was in the hospital just before the COVID period, around, I think, in February, late February. And uh, he had to go back to the hospital uh, uh, for follow-up on his operation. Uh, uh, and uh, that was during the start of the COVID period. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the doctors and nurses missed the fact he had uh, sepsis from the operation. And by the time they found it a couple of weeks later, uh, he, uh, was, it was, he, was, he was gone. So uh, he had passed away on the 1st of April, you know, 2020. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how many people yeah. were in that same situation, how many people we didn't count, you know, yes. Ramey, I'm so sorry about your dad, and I do remember stories like the ones you shared that were so heartbreaking. Are those numbers um, part of the death rate from from COVID? Part of the yeah. Death so toll? first of all, let me just say I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, this pandemic has taken away so much from us, and I'm 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 really sorry. Losing a parent's really really tough. Um, the COVID death numbers um, do not necessarily reflect that. It, um, what is what is counted um, were pe- uh, people who you know have, have been diagnosed um, with COVID. Um, but what I think we're, this this comment is ultimately pointing to is that pandemics harm in multiple ways. Um, they there's the direct effects the people who contracted the virus and, and died from the virus. There's the effects of people who um, had something else that probably would have been handled better were we not in a pandemic. So the disruption uh, to health systems that that the pandemic causes, in part because so many people are seeking care at the same time. Um, but there are also social and other you know other tolls that are happening. And so in my view, one of the better ways to kind of track the impacts of of a pandemic are to look at excess deaths. That is basically, we look at the number of people who died in a time period and we compare that to what we would expect to see based on numbers of people who died in that same time period in other years. And what we clearly see is that the tolls of the pandemic um, from all of the various ways that the the pandemic harms us uh, is really, you you know, at least several times what the official COVID counts are. And all of those deaths matter. You know, it's not just you get uh, more credit for dying of COVID versus dying of, of uh, a heart attack that couldn't be treated uh, because the health system was overwhelmed. It's all a tragedy and we have to prevent it all. Well, this is no rights. I think people need to realize that some things we can plan for, some things we will inevitably have to figure out in real time. That is why it's an emergency. I like the idea to plan like we do for fire, but also remember that every fire is different. Another listener writes, in the beginning days of the pandemic, as scared as I was, I appreciated the chance to be with my family, to live a slowed down life, to focus on what was essential, relationships with the people I love. Jennifer Nuzzo, thank you so much for talking with us today and reflecting with us today and also giving us some hope (laughs) for lessons we can learn. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Dr. Nuzzo is Professor of Epidemiology at Brown. Thank you, Grace Wan, for producing today's segment. And thank you, as always, listeners. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.